Let's pray. Lord, this morning, may it be your word with power. And that can only happen if your Holy Spirit speaks the words that we don't know to speak. But thank you for your promise that you will teach us your truth. May it change us, Lord. We love you. Amen. So as you entered your row, the, the, uh, the fall risks were these. Um, if you haven't gotten them, uh, they should be all around, and there's some in the back if you need them. And uh, if Josiah is quicker than I am, uh, for those who are at home, you'll also have uh, ability to click and, and get the notes. Um, open to John chapter 16. You probably know we're now deep into the Gospel of John. It has 21 chapters. Um, and uh, in chapter 16, the disciples, and for chapters, we've been in the, the Last Supper. And uh, I'm going to uh, look at a section that we historically, it's pretty obscure. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I ever remember anybody um, preaching on it. And uh, let's look together uh, at uh, chapter 16, verse 16. It'll be on the screen also. A little while you will no longer behold me, Jesus speaking, and a little while you will see me. Some of the disciples therefore said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? By the way, do you know how many thousands of times they had said that? Like every time Jesus spoke, they looked at each other and said, do you get him? Uh, And we're gonna see, that's one of the reasons this is such an obscure and untaught passage. Now watch the cluelessness deepen. Verse 17, some of the disciples said, therefore said to another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while you will not behold me, and again a little while you will see me. And because I go to the Father, something he had clearly been teaching sometime during that thing which he didn't say there but had led to it. And so they were saying, what is this he's saying? A little while we do know, not know what he is talking about. That actually could be the theme for the disciples, as you know. Verse 19, Jesus knew They wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together that this is, by the way, this is now the fourth time we've heard this phrase, right? A little while you will not behold me, and again a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice at his death, of course, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Talk about dense. Uh, we, We... We have the advantage, of course, don't be hard on them. We're on the other side of this. We get to see how the whole story unfolded. It's easy for us to see this is, again, another prophecy of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Actually, if you want to get into it, it's also a near-far prophecy. The near is crucifixion resurrection. The far prophecy is the ascension where he goes away for a little while. Remember, 2,000 years, no big deal. 1,000 years is as a day to the Lord and a day is as 1,000 years. So as far as he's concerned, he's been gone for two days. A little while away and then he comes back again and the joy at his second coming will be incredible for those who, who believe him and know him. So the, the, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, let's be fair to the, the disciples. Uh, we, uh, we've seen it unpacked. But look once again at verse 18. And so they were saying, what is it that he's saying a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. So this theme is repeated over and over in the Gospels. It shows the disciples' unshakable 
but false beliefs about the Messiah. They, despite being false, you could not get them off of these beliefs about the Messiah. Here's your first blank. Unshakable belief number one, now that the Messiah was here, right, he'd come. Now that he was here, they couldn't conceive of a future without him being physically present. They could, that was not in, that was as impossible for them to think of as for before 9-11 Americans and even the intelligence folks thinking somebody of flying an airplane intentionally into a building. I mean, don't be hard on them. Who could have thought that way, right? That it's, they just couldn't think that way. So unshakable belief number two, uh, here's your blanks. They couldn't conceive of life being anything other than easy and comfortable, ready, because Jesus would always be there to fix everything with his unlimited power. Now that Messiah had come, and especially since they were his best friends, he was gonna make things easy. It was gonna be cush. It was gonna be problem solved, life of ease, no problem. Our buddy Messiah, he's with us and he's here. Don't mess with him, right? That was, the, that, was that whole sense of, there's no, he's not gonna leave us, he's here. So to help correct this misunderstanding, God had strange plans for the seven weeks after the resurrection. Most of us think that the next thing to happen to the disciples after the resurrection were the ascension and Pentecost, right? That's, all, that's, that's the only thing on the calendar, the Christian calendar then. We, 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 that's like the next thing uh, to happen. But actually, there was a long pause. God had a 50-day delay planned. Jesus is with them. Holy Spirit, yes, yet has not pour, been poured out universally and the church hasn't begun. And what happened during this time has been all but ignored by the church. In fact, this time period has been so obscure in Christian teaching that many believers don't realize that Jesus actually hung around for almost two months after his resurrection. Now the reason I've set the message up this way is that very little focus has been given to the uh, att attention to what happened in between the four foundational Christian events. Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. There's days on the calendar for all of those, but essentially a, a black box, if you will, for nearly two months in Christian teaching. And I think that as soon as everyone has seen Jesus alive after his resurrection, we, we could ask the question, why didn't he immediately come, fill them with the Holy Spirit, and launch the church so that they could get about the business of saving the world? I mean, did God not care about lost people for 50 days? What in the world is going on here? Why not Monday morning? He announced, everybody says, yeah, he's here. Okay, and then, and some may say, well, it was because he needed to see a bunch of people, but we're gonna see in a minute. He actually saw a bunch of people, but only in, a couple of events, it's really striking. So in response to these questions, I'd like to look at what God accomplished among his followers during the seven weeks before Pentecost. The disciples' actions during Passion Week, you know what happened during Crucifixion Week, right? Here's your blanks, look at this. It shows what they were like. Number one, this is what the disciples were like. In, in Gethsemane, they all fled. Action number two. During Jesus' trial, they denied him 
even to a child. Peter gets the biggest credit for that, but they were all there with Peter, basically denying even to a servant girl, right? And action number three, after the resurrection, even though the disciples had been told that Jesus was alive, they were all hiding behind closed doors in fear, even after the resurrection. So we're talking real heroes here Jesus has to work with. Can you imagine that God is going to leave the plan for the salvation of the world with this wimpy, ragtag group? It's inconceivable, until we think about ourselves, of course. But, uh, so here's a summary, your next blanks, a summary of the disciples on Resurrection Sunday. You ready? Despite spending three and a half years with Jesus, they've gotten no farther than running for their lives the minute they think he's gone. Not much progress in three and a half years. If I were Jesus, I would look at my teaching evaluations and say, they might have liked me as a teacher, but I really failed on all productivity, right? They're just, I mean, they can't even, they can't go out and get a job. Um, So at this point, can you envision the disciples being given any responsibility without Jesus there to hold their hands and to fix their problems like he's been doing? for three and a half years, look what what he's been doing. They brought every single problem to Jesus for all of this time, more than three years. Here's just a few few examples. Lord, the people are hungry. What are you gonna do? You feed them. What? And I mean, we could go through many of these. Lord, Lazarus is dead. I'm the resurrection and the life. But Lazarus is dead. I'm the resurrection, and the life. But Lord, Lazarus is dead. And how about this one? The storm. We're all gonna die. Peace, be still. Who is this man? Just stunned, completely overwhelmed by not being able to understand the great God and Savior, the Messiah. How in the world was Jesus going to pull off changing these pathetic, immature, infighting, self-centered babies into leaders that he could use to change the world in just 50 days? Talk about an extreme makeover. I mean, this isn't like just making an old grungy house nice so that you can sell it. This is like turning outhouse into the Taj Mahal, right? I mean, this is, they are utterly incompetent, faithless, fearful, that's who they are. That's literally who they are. What is he gonna do? What's he gonna do during these 50 days? And it's pretty amazing to me what he actually does. See, the Father has, of course, a masterful plan. And in addition to the power of the resurrection and the power that comes in Pentecost, God knew that they needed the umbilical cord cut. It's really strange. The physical Jesus umbilical cord that took care of everything, the Father... They not only needed the resurrection and the the, uh, Pentecost, they needed the, you don't need Jesus to hold your hand. It's a strange thing that God had planned. So you ready? Look at at God's threefold plan, here's your blanks, to prepare his followers to help him save his world. Ready? The resurrection, the first two are easy. The resurrection, Pentecost, 
And what the best phrase I've ever seen for this 50-day time period ever in Christian writing that I found was the, 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 uh, the, the late Dennis Kinlaw, an amazing, amazing biblical Old Testament scholar, and he called it, ready, the great weaning period. Are these showing? Okay, good. The great weaning period. So, so what was the third part of the plan? The great weaning period was the time between the resurrection and Pentecost. And during this time, Jesus had to teach the disciples that there was a time coming when they would never, think about this, they would no longer be able to feel him. They would no longer be able to touch him or be in his physical presence. That was everything they knew about Messiah. He's right here. So he was gonna leave them. And when this time came, they were gonna have to believe, listen church, they were gonna have to believe and stand firm even though they couldn't see him or feel him around anymore. It was gonna have to be something deeper than hey, he's touching, holding my hand. So here's one of the greatest mysteries of all time, here's your blanks, that Jesus left his kingdom on earth behind, it's a mystery, right? that Jesus left his kingdom on earth behind without his physical presence. Think what he could have done in the last 2,000 years if he'd have just stayed. Imagine if he had Twitter. Think of the incredible impact that Jesus on the earth, and by the way, if you use it, you know the reason why God allowed Twitter to be created, imagined, was so that Spirit-filled Jesuses all over the world will use every mechanism they can of communication to be Jesus to a lost world. Remember that the next time you get snarky. I know some of you are really, really tough when it's uh, over the airwaves, but not so much in person. So to understand this, let's look at what Jesus did during the seven weeks between the resurrection and Pentecost. So let's start by Jesus' physical contact with his followers. You may have never known what happened during that time much to speak of, right? You ready? Sometimes, here's your blank. Sometimes Jesus said, touch me. Look with me at John chapter 20, over, uh, over four uh, chapters. John chapter 20, verse 26. John 20, 26, look at this. And after eight days, his disciples were with him and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and, the, and stood in their midst and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger to see my hands and reach here and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. So during this time, sometimes he said, touch me. But other times, here's your next blank. Other times he said, don't touch me. Look at verse 15, a few verses before that in chapter 20. Verse 15, and Jesus said to her, woman, we know this is Mary, why? Are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. And she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So during this period, sometimes he said, touch me. And sometimes he said, don't touch me. And now, We've looked at his physical contact. How about Jesus' physical presence with his followers? Here's your blank. Sometimes Jesus was with them. Look what happened when the disciples were being told about Jesus' resurrection. Look here from Luke chapter 24. 
While they were telling him these things, he himself stood in their midst and said, peace be to you. So sometimes Jesus showed up during this time, but other times, here's your blank, other times he left them. So look what happens after his resurrection. He's been on the road to Emmaus, and he comes to the village of Emmaus. He stays at those people's house that night. And notice when he reclined, Luke 24, when he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And look at this. And he vanished from their sight. So he's both physically resurrected and spiritually resurrected. So amazingly enough, he can eat sardines, and he can go through a wall. The resurrection body is stunning to think about, right? What it will be like. Okay, in fact, it appears that Jesus may have only been with them three times, 50 days, three times in 50 days with the apostles. Look at John 21. That's exactly what it says. We come all the way to the end of John in this verse, and it says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus manifested himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, let's think this through. Jesus only had 50 days to confer on the disciples everything he wanted them to have. But if this is the right interpretation, If he was only with them three times, why did he spend so little time with them? Why didn't he take every waking moment and keep them up late at night and wake them up early in the morning all 50 days to now, as the resurrected Christ, teach them all the stuff that they didn't have yet? Um, Shouldn't he have spent all of that time with them? And the clear answer is, even though he could have been teaching them and inspiring them and encouraging them, the answer of shouldn't he have done that was no. So here's why. As he was leaving them on their own, Jesus was teaching his followers two profound lessons. Here they are in your notes. Number one, lesson number one, the risen Christ would be with them even when they couldn't see him or touch him or feel him. Some of you need to understand that right now. With them, even though they couldn't see him, feel him, touch him. And lesson number two, he wanted them to be able to stand strong, ready, without needing props. What a bummer. What do you mean, stand strong, without the fixer next to you? But notice, these lessons aren't just for the disciples, are they? They're exactly what Jesus wants to teach every one of his followers today. So, think about this. It's a very rare Christian who hasn't had times where the Lord felt distant. You know, I won't ask for raised hands because we'll all be mad at you if anybody raises your hand. If I ask, have you never had a time where the Lord felt distant and you raise your hand and say, no, I I really haven't. We don't want to hear your testimony because all the rest of us have really tough times, don't we? All the rest of us have had times where we're saying, God, where are you? So, every believer has times when they feel spiritually dry, they don't sense a closeness with God, and in these periods it can feel like, doesn't it? Like our prayers aren't getting through, like heaven is silent, and God is a long way off, 
And this often leads to a common question asked by believers. Here's your blank. You can see I'm getting through them fast today. And thanks to Dana, you only have one page instead of two pages of notes. You should thank her. Um, A common question asked by believers, Lord, why do I feel like you leave me sometimes? Why can't I always sense your presence? That is a good question, isn't it? That's a great question. Times like this can lead us to doubt a concept that seems firmly established in Scripture. I suspect if you've ever been in church, you have heard this verse. It's Hebrews 13.5, quoting from many places in the Old Testament. Look at it on the screen. He himself said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. I'm giving the most common translation of that verse. I will never leave you. I will never, in the New Testament, by the way. Most of the uh, translators who, who actually biffed in the Greek get it right in the Old Testament when they're uh, looking at the Old Testament renderings of it. So um, look what happened during the great weaning period. Not only did Jesus leave the disciples, he basically left them before he left them. I mean, wouldn't you think he'd show up once a day to say, hey guys? No, three times in 50 days. So Jesus actually left before he left. This doesn't make sense. Uh, For most of the last 50 days, he was around, but he wasn't actually around. How's that? Thanks, Lord. You're like around. What do you do? I mean, what was he doing? Playing tiddlywinks out in the wilderness? I mean, what was he doing if he wasn't going to work on the disciples? And um, I want to clear up a flawed understanding that many Christians have about Hebrews 13.5. You ready? The most common rendering of this text in most of the translations, ready? I will never leave you. That's not what the Greek says and that's not what the Hebrew says of the Old Testament versions of this. You ready for the accurate rendering? It's actually this. If you have the RSV or NASB, it'll say this. It actually is, I will never desert you. I'll never desert you. This is not a trivial difference. I'll never leave you versus I'll never desert you. And the common rendering can lead to a misunderstanding. Jesus never deserts us, but he leaves our feelings. He leaves our tactile sense. Those mountaintop experiences or that incredible sense of the first time you were cleansed and you knew God was there, no matter what anybody else said, you just knew he was there. He, those go away. He does leave, but he never deserts us. Let me explain what I mean by showing the parallel with what happened when Jesus left the disciples. All the followers of Christ will have times when even though Jesus is present, he doesn't feel present. Even though Jesus is around, even though he's our rock, we just sang it this morning, even though he's our foundation, it doesn't feel like he's present. Um, Is there in fact any believer that has ever lived who 100% of the time felt the sensible presence of God, and I don't think there is one. And this brings us to a very reasonable question. Why? He certainly can do that. He can do anything that he wants to. Why doesn't God stay sensibly present in our feelings and emotions continuously? Wouldn't it be easier for us to live victoriously, to resist temptation, to walk in power, and to do his will if we felt his presence all the time? Did he mess this up? I mean, why can't we feel Jesus all the time? And the knee-jerk answer is, of course it would be easier. If I saw, if Jesus was right here, how would I do a temptation? Better. How about you? 
right? We don't really believe in the omnipresence of God, do we? Because if Jesus was right there, we would always be down with what Jesus is doing, wouldn't we? So did he mess this up? So here's why he doesn't do it. In reality, if he did this, he wouldn't be making powerful contenders for the faith, church. You know what he'd be making? He'd be making spiritual cripples. Can't do anything unless somebody else does it for me. Let me illustrate this. When David and Rebecca got to the right age, I taught them how to ride bikes. And there came a point where I let them start riding, uh, you know, took off the training wheels and let them start riding uh, ahead of me. Now, in that sense, I left them. I wasn't holding them anymore. uh, But I hadn't deserted them because I actually was running behind them, right, so that if they they wouldn't fall or if they did fall, I'd catch them before they, they hit. But there came a time where to be a good parent, I actually left them. I left them, but I didn't desert them. Yeah, did they fall tums sometimes and come with their scrapes and come crying? Yes, but I was there to hold them and pat them, and in my case, if they needed it, I could suture their laceration you know, at home, uh, that kind of thing. The, I, I, ne- I never deserted them, but here's a real key. If I had always, if I had always been their training wheels, They would never have learned to ride confidently and independently. Listen, church, they never would have ridden like an adult. God wants us to ride like an adult. Doesn't matter who's in the room, doesn't matter who's watching, my word is the same, my mind is the same, what I'm looking at on my computer is the same, whether someone's in the room or not. Because, you ready? Someone's always in the room just so confident that he's there and I can start saying, I don't have to feel like doing it to be faithful. Now, to take this point even deeper, you ready? A little bit of parental teaching since I've now got a grandson. I feel like I might be able to teach a little bit about parenting. Um, Dana's the expert in our home. Uh, Check with her if I get this wrong. But the flip side of this concept is really instructive. You ready? Here's your blank. There's a way to desert a child by not leaving them. Strange. It's actually pathological to hover over them so that they never learn to take risks and they never learn to make their own decisions. See, not leaving them can be a way of deserting them because you're not deserting them now, but at some point, paradoxically, think of it, there'll come a day when they need to stand up in their own strength and they need to have their own wisdom and they need to think like an adult and they need to make their own decision. And if I've never left them to allow them to mature and grow up, I will have been responsible for crippling them. I'm not deserting them today. I'm deserting them for the rest of their life because they have to grow up. And oh, as a parent, Is that painful sometime? So at the very moment they need to be able to do the right thing without me, in the future they'll fall on their faces because they never learned to overcome challenges without me propping them up. And you know what? That's being a good human father, and guess what? Our heavenly father wants that in us. So let's go back to the great weaning period. In his love and his brilliance, Jesus left the disciples to begin the process of learning how to stand firm even when they didn't sense his presence. They couldn't touch him anymore. And this leads to our application. Here's your blanks. 
Too many blanks, so I'll read it twice. The greatest blow, this is really important, the greatest blow that believers can deliver to the enemy is when all the props are gone and they don't feel God's presence and yet they still obey. You ready? The greatest blow that believers can deliver to the enemy is when all the props are gone and they don't feel God's presence and yet they still obey. Let me say it another way. God's most effective weapon against the forces of darkness is when his children remain faithful even when they don't feel his presence. Satan can do nothing about that. He loses all power when that happens. C.S. Lewis masterfully illustrates this in The Truth of the Screw Tape Letters. I'll, I'll, it'll be up on the screen in a minute, but let me just give you the setup for those of you who've never read screw, ta screw Tape. You should. It's a brilliant, brilliant book written by Lewis, and it's the, the Screw Tape Letters are literally the letters from Screw Tape, who is a senior tempter. He's in the you know, high command, uh, or the low, co low command, right? Uh, the, almost down to the, to the big guy in low command, and he's writing letters to help his nephew, a junior tempter, learn how to be a really good tempter. And so he, the, uh, Wormwood, has the, the junior tempter, has this, um, has this new charge, this new patient, they call him, and he's a new believer. Sounds like it's been within the last year or so that this, this guy has come to Christ. And so Wormwood's job is try to woo him away from God. And now remember, in the screw tape letters, God is called the enemy, right? Because it's a demon writing it. So when he talks about the enemy, he's talking about God. And look at this with me, incredible insight as Screwtape is teaching the junior tempter about what happens when you start no longer feeling the high that you felt when you first knew Christ. Wormwood, this is where the troughs come in. You must have often wondered why the enemy doesn't make more use of his power to be obviously present to the human souls all the time, kind of what we're talking about this morning. It turns out that he does a little overriding of their senses at the beginning when they first come to know him. He will set them off with communications of his presence which, though faint, seem very great to them with emotional sweetness. You remember the great day? That, oh, it's being cleansed, just that feeling of my sins are gone. Jesus, you are so amazing. We feel so amazing, but he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws from their conscious experience, remember, not from reality, but from their conscious experience, all the initial supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on his own legs to carry out, ready? to carry out from the will alone duties that have lost all relish and joy. What incredible insight. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that the creatures are growing into the sort of persons that he wants them to be. Some of you came in this morning and you could barely make it here. And what you need to know now is, now is when you are the most dangerous to the enemy. It's when you feel the weakest. It's when you feel the most hopeless. It's when you feel like, this, I'm not sure this even makes any sense to me anymore. This is the time you are the most dangerous to the low command. This is what makes demons shudder. So look at, he goes on, this is incredible. Therefore, the prayers offered in a state of dryness 
are those which please him most. Isn't that wonderful to know? Right now, if you're struggling with your prayer life, isn't it great to know that just because you trust him enough to talk to him, he's pleased. Look at how kind and gracious, look at it. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Isn't God's grace amazing? I'm not doing it right, God. It's not perfect. I, don't, I, I blow this all the time. But because I love you, I want to be who you want me to be. And that pleases him greatly. Do not, I love this ending. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring to do the enemy's will, but still intending to do it, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and he even asks why he has been forsaken, and then he still obeys. Now, having begun to understand what the disciples were starting to learn during the great weaning period, let's look how it helped them prepare as they began to spread the gospel. You probably know early in Acts, in chapter two, Peter preaches that amazing inaugural message and the apostles are going throughout Jerusalem and they're, they're un unleashing the witnessing and they're performing miracles and then immediately multitudes come to Christ. So Peter now, every preacher loves a crowd, so now he cranks it up for number two. And in, in Acts chapter three, right, he gives that second amazing thing. And, and, and this, of course, gets the, 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 this huge multitude now hearing about Jesus, it gets all the Jewish leaders riled up and they arrested Peter and John. And the council threatened them. Turn to Acts chapter four with me. Acts chapter four. Um, they threatened him and they ordered him to stop preaching in the name of of Jesus. So they were undeterred by these threats. So let's pick up in verse 33 of Acts chapter 4. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And now things even get more amazing. Go to chapter 5, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets. Now look at this. This is, this is he could have established Peter International Ministries, Inc., if he'd wanted to. Look at this. This is like what they say they can do on TV but can't. It was really happening. Look at this. So that when Peter came by, at least his shadow would fall on any of them. I mean, look what the Spirit of God is doing among them. It's stunning. Verse 16, and also the people from the cities of the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all, they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up among all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. So, the price for preaching the gospel, right before they didn't even really get a hand slap, they just said stop teaching in the name. Now they've been tossed in jail. The price is going up. But God sends them right, right back out to spread the good news. This is cool, right? God breaks them out of jail. Ready, verse 19. But the angel of the Lord, during the night, opened the, an angel of the Lord, 
not Jesus, right, an angel of the Lord, then I opened the gates of the prison, taking them out and said, go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. So, I mean, is this great or what? They're on a roll, leading a huge awakening. I mean, their shadow seems to heal people. This is rocking and rolling. They're performing signs and wonders. And despite all the threats, God gets them out of every pickle that they get into. So here we go again, verse 25. But someone came and reported, behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Now until this point, things have been easy. They preach, they get threatened, God fixes the problem. They preach again, They get threatened again, God fixes the problem again. This is great. Don't you wish the church was just like this all the rest of the 2,000 years? It would actually be mostly fun, right? So this is really their great. So um, the, the problem is now the easy times are over. The Sanhedrin intends to kill them. And even though Gamaliel, a leader of the council, talks them out of murdering them, the time that they, this time they don't get off the hook. The time now gets right down painful. Look at verse 40 near the end of this chapter. And they took his advice, Gamaliel's, and after calling the apostles, they flogged them. Now, by the way, back then they were not, there was no constitution that said you can't do cruel and unusual punishment. They were making up new ways to be cruel and unusual punishments. So they were flogged and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. So now they're leaving the Sanhedrin, and think of what situation they're in now. Now their backs are shredded and lacerated, and the blood is all over their clothes, and the pulsating pain of the whips is still stinging. Every time they take a breath and expand their chest, their skin hurts. It pains them. At this point, guess what? The spiritual highs of the resurrection and Pentecost seem a long time ago, don't they? All the mountaintop all of a sudden, all that mountaintop is long gone. All the props have been removed. But during the great weaning period, Jesus had taught them that he would be their mighty fortress even when the circumstances got tough and even when it seemed like he had vanished. And because of this, look what happened in verse 41. The brilliance of God's three-part plan now shows up. Verse 41 So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Think of that. Finding joy that they were found worthy to suffer for the gospel. What an incredible story of the enormous damage that God can do to the enemy when believers are faithful even after the props have all been removed. 
They've been imprisoned and beaten, and they're canvassing the neighborhoods looking for people to tell the good news. And we see how powerful God's people become when they don't have to have luxury or ease or leisure or blessings or security or comfort or even safety in order to obey the Lord. So think about the truths that flow from this passage. I think this is remarkable. The greatest things that get done, listen church, the greatest things that get done aren't done when believers feel like it. The greatest things that get done for God aren't done when everything's going well. The greatest things that get done for God aren't done when believers are on spiritual mountaintops. That is confusing preaching that emerges from the health and wealth gospel and it's heresy. You come to God and if you're doing it right, everything's fine. You'll always be well. You'll always have stuff. You'll always have money. You'll always have this. God, God's main purpose in your life is to, is to bless you. No, God's main purpose in our life is to use us as a sacrifice to help him save his world just like he did on the cross. That's his great calling. So guess what? When we're faithful to God, there are plenty of times when the reason why we obey isn't because we feel like it, but because we know we have joined in changing the world and nothing, nothing is gonna stop us. The greatest things that get done for God are done when the emotions are gone and the feelings are gone and the circumstances are tough and the situation is challenging and when we feel like we can't go one more step. And this gives us our last blanks. It's a key concept. If you don't write anything else in this morning, write this in. It's the step that's taken when we can't take one more step that defeats the enemy. It's the step that's taken when we can't take one more step. When in the metaphor, we're bleeding, we've been beaten, we've been flogged, we feel abandoned. And yet, as screw tape tells Wormwood to be really worried about, and yet we still obey, we crush the power of the enemy. That's right. The big victories in our lives and in the kingdom often happen when the only reason to continue to be faithful is because we trust God no matter what happens and no matter how we feel. Think about it. I'm afraid, Lord. I'm afraid to take the next step. Or I'm just too low. I'm dry. I'm just, I just, I'm too depressed. I feel abandoned. Jesus, have you left me? And in that state, when someone is faithful, the second most powerful in the entity in all of creation is yielded powerless. Because what's he gonna do? If he can take everything away, and if you can have the sense that the only reason I'm being faithful is because I trust God, what can the enemy do? It is an amazing thing. So Pastor Josiah, come on up. As we end, I wanna ask all of us a question. Do you really wanna do something great for God? Now don't just give the knee-jerk Christianese response. I mean, do you really, really wanna do something great for God? If you do, it's gonna mean that you're gonna have to do it in the face of your weakness and your inadequacy 
and your lack of confidence and your insecurities and maybe you're gonna face depression or fear and it's gonna happen that if you're not in a trough right now, as Screwtape called it, if you're not in a low point right now, there's gonna come a point where really following God, really doing something great for God is gonna have to happen when you're faithful even though you're in a valley, even though you're at a low point. So there's two kind of Christians here today. Those who are in a valley <laughs> and those who will be in a valley if Jesus doesn't come back and, or if you don't stop breathing for some reason. That, that's the two kind of believers that are here. And all of us know troughs if we've known Jesus for long at all. Maybe you're in a trough and if you're not, you're gonna be. So now we know why God allows us to be in the valley because when we're at the lowest and the most in trouble and we have no idea how we're gonna take one more step, that's when God can use us mightily because that's when we're, we stop depending on ourselves and our strength and our plans and our gifts and our graces. We just, we say, it's not enough, Lord, it's not enough. And he says, I finally have you exactly where I want you. When you become totally dependent upon me, nothing can stop us together. As long as you're dependent upon yourself, I can't trust you with power because you'll think you did it. I, I just hate teaching this because I, I find myself on my face all week. <laughs> Isn't this a bummer? But do you realize, do you realize that if the enemy is listening this morning, he is horrified at 150 people who might leave today saying, I don't care how I feel, I'm gonna be faithful. That horrifies the enemy. Listen one more time to this. <laughs> don't be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring to do our enemy's will, but still intending to do it, looks upon, around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and even asks why he's been forsaken. And then he still obeys. Church, this is when the enemy has lost all power over followers of Jesus. Stand with me. In a moment, I'm gonna open the altars. Some here this morning may feel like the Lord is distant. You may be in a valley and maybe you're facing challenges. Think about this. If that's where you are, now's when you can deliver the greatest blow to the enemy. But that may mean that you have to take, make the toughest decision, the riskiest decisions, the boldest decisions to move ahead. You may know, you may really be hoping and clinging on that relationship and you know it's time to cut it off and go. It may be a horrifying decision for you. It may be really scary. But it means that you're gonna have to make a deeper commitment to the Lord to go where the Lord is leading and to strike the enemy with the power of God that comes when we simply trust him. Right now, even if you don't feel that God is close, and maybe you wonder if he's vanished, things aren't going well in life, will you trust him? Will you obey him? Now, a great thing about these altars, some churches 
have them and some churches don't, but one of the great things about it is it represents bringing our problems, our pain, our suffering, our, the thing, our troubles. And it, it, it represents just bringing them in, just laying them down and say, God, I can't carry them anymore. I'm giving them to you. And I'm not gonna pick them up when I get up from the altar. So you don't have to come to the altar to make a covenant with God today about this. It doesn't matter how I feel. Lord, by your grace, I'm gonna obey. But some of us, we just need to bring it and just put it on the altar. So if you're at that point and you need to lay something before the Lord so that he can show himself mighty in your life, come as we sing together. Just come, Josiah.